I have just decided that my new quarantine project is to learn how to French braid my own hair. Oh, exciting! Which I have never done before. Okay, okay. Listening to Love Ya, your guided tour through the wide and wonderful world of streaming teenage rom-coms. I am one of your co-hosts, Martha Sullivan, YA librarian and teen lit uh, connoisseur. I feel like I forget that word every single time I do this in pro. <laughs> um, I am joined, as always, by my other co-host. I'm Marin Hagman, adult services librarian and rom-com enthusiast. Uh, and we are here to discuss the brand spanking new Netflix original, The Half of It. But before we do, uh, Marin, how are you doing? You getting through it? I'm doing okay. Um, yeah. It, 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 yeah. Right for like the 10th week of this nightmare world that we live in. Um, and I just, I feel like it's important for us to check in with each other. Like, we as in the universal we, not you, we as in you and I specifically. But because we get to we get to talk to each other, I just, you know, want to wanna check in and see how you're doing. What, what well, media thanks. are you currently using to escape the, <laughs> the terrible reality? <laughs> oh, um, that is a very important question. And I feel... Like, that is a question that is great to spread far and wide. I um, have a few friends of mine, and I have started a book club. Excellent. And, um, and it is exclusively um, rom-com, like, beach read books. Um, Beautiful. Which is great. Um, and so currently we are reading, and I need to read a whole bunch of it before we meet tomorrow, um, Get a Life, Chloe Brown, um, but I believe it's Talia Hilbert. That one's really fun. It's really fun. And it is available on Hoopla. Um, but yeah, so I have been enjoying that um, quite a bit. Um, Martha, how are you doing? I'm good, but I'm going to give you a quick recommendation. Oh, yes, please. Um, so after you finish that, I think that you should read Get It Together, Delilah. Mm. By Aaron Go. That's G-O-U-G-H. Um, great. Yeah, it's about a, a Delilah who's a senior in high school and is just sort of a disaster, like many of us were at 17. <laughs> um, so yeah, that's my quickie recommendation. Excellent. Um, I'm okay. Continuing to uh, play many, many video games, although yesterday I read an entire book all in one day. Oh, wonderful. It was, uh, which one was it? It was Gossip Girl number 12. So the last book in the Gossip Girl series where it's like a, a fast forward book. So the book is in four chunks um, as our main characters are freshmen, sophomores, juniors, and then seniors in college. So it it takes, each chunk takes place over winter vacation of one of their years in college until they finally are looking at graduating. Um, I read the Gossip Girl books voraciously. 
um, a few of them more than once. And this was not my first time reading this one, but it was like, you know what? This one's available on Overdrive. I don't have to wait for it. I needed to sink in. I Will Always Love You is the name of that specific one. Um, I just needed to sink into the cattiness and the rich person porn of Upper East Side New York for, you know, a couple of hours. Oh, that series is so good for that. I think I only read the first couple of books, but I certainly watched most of, if not the whole of the TV show. I got through about the first four seasons of the show before I kind of lost track of it. Um, I have thought about revisiting the show, except that some pretty gross stuff happened with the actor who played Chuck Bass. Oh, yes. Ed, and Ed Westwick, I, I think his name is. Yeah. yeah. And I think I would have trouble looking at his face. It's also why I haven't revisited Glee because of everything that happened with. Um... Oh, what is his name? I know the guy who plays um, Puck, right? Yes. Yeah. yeah. The actor who plays Puck. Um, yeah. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. And I, I avoided rewatching Gossip Girl because I know that the Chuck Blair relationship, which was very intriguing to me as a you know college student, I think is when Gossip Girl started for me, would mm-hmm. in hindsight be Not very be un- super great. <laughs> yep, be very unhealthy. So I, I'm kind of okay. And it's a bummer because that show really did feature some pretty great performances. It did. And I feel like it was such a part of the zeitgeist um, that I I do have a fondness and nostalgia for it. I have memories of, you know, gathering weekly dorm floor gatherings to watch it in our common room and things like that. Um, And I think... I have, I have rewatched more of One Tree Hill and I guess gotten some of that same enjoyment in that series. I feel like in hindsight is not like that series holds up quite a bit better. Um, and that was not one that I ever watched. I really missed out on that whole like teenage dirtbag kind of subsect of TV. Like I did not watch One Tree Hill. I didn't watch The O.C. I didn't watch Dawson's Creek. Um, and sometimes I feel like I may have missed out on that. I would say yes and no. I mean, I think that there are definitely is such an aughts thing that I, I, as I said, I have some some fondness and nostalgia for it. I mean, I would say if you want to pick one, I would pick One Tree Hill because I think it has definitely aged the best okay. of any and all of them. Um, I. The only reason I would go with the OC over One Tree Hill is that I think there's less of it. (laughs) Oh, yeah, and I would say you can absolutely stop watching One Tree Hill after season four. Like, the first four seasons (laughs) of One Tree Hill are great, and they could have just ended this series there, and it would have been wonderful. The last, I don't even know how far they ended up getting. I myself stopped after season six, and I'm okay with that. Season six was another good stopping place. Um, I can't remember how long they kept going. I mean, they might have even gotten up to, like, eight or ten seasons. Um, but yeah, I would say the first four seasons tell a really complete story and, um, are really all you need to watch. Good to know. But I, yeah, but yeah, I, I totally, 
totally get that inclination. Because <laughs> I think the OC didn't last four seasons, was it? I, I think five. I okay. think it's five. Okay. Um, Listeners, feel free to not correct me. <laughs> um, okay. All right. So, the half of it. The half of our it. movie. Um, the half of it is a movie that was released in 2020, like a couple of weeks ago. It was written and directed by a woman named Alice Wu, whose only other writing and directing credits are one of my favorite movies of all time, Saving Face, about um, uh, two Chinese-American women dealing with uh, their attraction to each other and also their very traditional parents. This is... Um, mostly important because it is a movie that I love and I did not realize that Alice Wu had just jumped from that little nugget of indie perfection to uh, this one. So, Lauren, how would you like to give us a synopsis of the half of it? Yeah, so the half of it is about um, three seniors in high school in a small town in what is presumed to be somewhere in the Pacific Northwest I think we presumed Washington, um, called Squamish. Um, and the main character is Ellie Chu, um, who spends most of her time taking care of her father, um, who is the, the station master and signal man, um, in the small town's railroad station, um, and who kind of keeps her household going through a combination of looking after her father and writing classmates' papers for them. Um, She gets asked to write a love letter for the jock Paul, um, who is in love with the most popular girl in school, Aster Flores. Um, And we get a bit of a Cyrano de Bergerac situation where Ellie writes these letters for Paul um, to Aster and uh, finds out that she is she is herself have has feelings for Aster. Um, and she Ellie begins to connect with Aster through their letters and connect with Paul as a friend um, through kind of this whole situation. <laughs> um, and um, Aster and Paul start, of seeing each other, um, although she has a really mean um, jock boyfriend. Um, hate him. He's he's just the worst. Just side note, I hate him. He's, he's just so awful. Um, so meanwhile, while Paul and Aster are you know seeing each other on kind of secret dates, um, Aster and Ellie become friends and connect um and although Aster does not put together the that the quote-unquote Paul writing the letters um bears has a has a lot more in common with what she and Ellie talk about in person um this situation kind of continues for a while Paul and Ellie have become friends um this all comes to a head when Paul decides that um, he actually might have a crush on Ellie instead and attempts to kiss her. Um, This prompts Paul to figure out that Ellie is not attracted to him, but Aster. Uh, And then there is a whole big confrontation in the Aster's father's church, um, where Aster's terrible boyfriend 
um, proposes to her in front of everyone, um, and Ellie, um, and Paul kind of interrupt the moment, um, and Aster figures out their deception. Um, the last uh, part of the movie features them all kind of going their separate ways for college, um, Ellie and Aster share a kiss, um, Paul chases down Ellie's train, um, as she is about to leave for college, um, and they kind of solidify their friendship. Um, so this movie ends with kind of all of them going their separate ways. I think, I think I've gotten most of it. I think there, there are some subplots I'm forgetting, but then those are the big... If it's important, we'll get into it. Yeah, yeah. Those, I think, are the main points. Um, so, as I said, this movie, you know, has some nods to Cyrano de Bergerac. Um, yeah. Martha, how did how did you enjoy this movie? I liked this movie a lot. <laughs> um, Maren and I watched this uh, together on Netflix parties, so we both got to kind of see each other's reactions as they happened. And while I have some nits to pick, I would say overall I found this movie to be um, incredibly charming. I really enjoyed our three leads, although I did feel that um, Polly and Ellie got a little bit more uh, detail and attention than Aster did ultimately. Um, but I also think that I'm okay with that because at the end of the day, I do think this movie is mostly about their friendship, which I really appreciated. Um, it's about the two of them kind of realizing that each one is more than sort of meets the eye and coming to appreciate each other for who they are rather than um, their impression of each other or initial impression of each other. Yeah, I I wholly agree. I think by far the strongest part of this movie was the developing friendship between Paul and Ellie. Uh, I think that it was really sweet um, and really satisfying. I It even let me let go. So, so shockingly, I don't know that this has come up on this podcast before, but I really have a nit to pick with movies where they market them as a romantic comedy and it does not follow the romantic comedy formula. Um, I'm very happy to have movies in the world that take pieces from romantic comedies and do something different. I think that's totally great. Um, but in, in the best example I can think of this is actually Last Christmas, the movie that came out with Amelia Clark last year. But I like, it really bothers me when movies market themselves as a romantic comedy and then do not are not a romantic comedy um and I think that this movie's marketing kind of gave me enough heads up to know that this was not going to be a traditional romantic comedy and I could just kind of let go um of that particular acts I tend to grind um so and I think that the gender bending and the queer aspect of the movie was not a like I think that was part of the marketing. Right, right, yeah, that's what I'm saying. Like it's it, it's marketing prepared me enough to be like, oh, this is not going to be a, um, you know, by the formula romantic comedy, um, which I'm very grateful for because then I was able to come into it, um, and just really kind of appreciate that the movie you know, was really centered about this friendship 
um, and these three teenagers, you know, figuring out who they are, which is great. I was so prepared. Like, I spent the first 20 minutes of this movie being like, why are we spending so much time with Polly? I don't care about him. I don't, I'm not interested in him. And by the end of the movie, I was deeply into the Polly must be protected at all costs. Right. So I thought, I thought that was a really neat bit of um, writing kind of, I, I, I say bait and switch, but usually, usually that's negative. And here I don't think it was. Cause like, I am a person for whom my priority when I'm watching a movie is how are the women being treated? How are the characters of color being treated? How are the queer characters being treated? Like white guys are so far down my list of priorities that I was deeply like, why are we spending so much time with Paul? I would much rather be learning more about Ellie and Aster. And I think the movie does a really good job of making Paul not only, um, not only a character that you like but a character that you are interested in like he he ends up being much more than i think the movie initially uh kind of wants you to think that he is well and i think circling back around to something you said earlier i i think it mirrors the fact that we as the audience um, get to go beyond our first impressions of Paul just as Ellie does. Like, I think, oh, for that, sure. I think that that's a really nice payoff that the writing does where, you know, we see Polly as one thing in the beginning and then we get to kind of let into his world over the course of the movie as Ellie gets let into his world and she lets him into her world and... Um, that we, we get to go beyond that and we get to, you know, not only see their friendship develop kind of beyond the stereotypes they've created of each other, but yeah, that who they are as people is not that stereotype. Well, and the movie, I think the the central thesis of the movie is that people, that you have to get to know somebody before being able to judge them like that almost nobody except for Aster's terrible boyfriend is who you initially perceive them to be and that it is worth taking the time and energy to get to know somebody in order to like really understand who they are which is kind of the central thesis of Cyrano de Bergerac so I guess that tracks (laughs) yeah absolutely well and I think even you know, we even get to have that for Ellie's father, where he initially seems to be unable to adult, basically. Um, and then over the course of the movie, he grows to be able to take care of himself. And we learn, you know, we get, you know, more sense of, you know, what he is going through. Um, and you know, the, the really tragic, um, path that has led him to where he is, but then also at the end, you know, some healing and he gets to, um, like he gets to have a friendship with Paul too. And I, I, I found some of those scenes the most sweet in the movie too. Oh, for sure. When Paul is like overcooking with Ellie's dad, even when Ellie's not home. (laughs) 
Yeah, that was so sweet. And the taco sausage. Uh, so Paulie's whole deal is that he, his family operates, owns and operates a, a sausage factory. And they, you get the, um, you know, he, he lets us know that they have not been super successful as of late because they are not, you know, they're using the same recipes. They're using grandma's recipes because his mom is like, these are, you know, we're, we're making grandma's sausage, so we can't change that recipe. And he has a recipe for taco sausage that he thinks is going to be like the next big thing. And one of the best running jokes in the whole movie is that it's actually really good. <laughs> so Ellie at first is like, no, I don't want to try your taco sausage. But then Ellie's dad is like, hey, yeah, this is great. And I think by the end of the movie, he's filling dumplings with it, yes. which I loved. And that was such a nice, like, little neat trick of writing to have, you know, sausage and embody a lot of the the themes of the movie, um, where, you know, they're, he and her dad are connecting, he's, you know, innovating with it, he's, like, going beyond that surface level of this is a sausage we make, grandma sausage, you know, it's, yeah, it's just such a fun you know, neat encapsulation, encasement, <laughs> pun intended, uh-huh. um, of, you know, what the movie is trying to do. Um, I also appreciated that through the, through the mechanism of the sausage, uh, one of my least favorite tropes for teen-based movies is absent parents. Like, not not parents that are absent because of a story reason, but just the writers didn't want to deal with them having parents, so we don't see their parents. Um, and in this movie, everyone's parents are like an active part of the uh, of the story. So we get to see, you know, Paul's mom and his whole raucous family, and how they are contrasted between Ellie's very quiet and insular relationship with her father, um, and even Aster and her extremely conservative father, who is the um, pastor of the church. Um, you know, we get to learn about how she is dealing with his expectations for her. So, like, the parents in this are not only present, um, but their impact on their kids is part of the story. Yeah, which I think, like you said, like it, it's, I feel like, yeah, so often writers rely on that trope of, oh, the parents aren't paying attention. Um, It's one of the reasons I would almost rather just read boarding school teen literature. It's like then, you know, even, even if this takes place in a boarding school, just because we don't want to have to deal with parents, um, I'm looking at you looking for Alaska, um, that at least is a reason. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Yeah, I think that makes total sense. I mean, it's also, I mean, and that trope is so foundational to a lot of things. I mean, for goodness sakes, like Disney has basically enshrined that trope into so many of its products. Like, that was one of the really neat things about Moana was that her her parents and grandma were such a central part of the story mm-hmm. and even even the dead parent thing bothers me less than just the we're just not going to talk about him yeah 
like, mm, where are their where are their parents while all of this is happening? <laughs> and that is definitely that is definitely a concern that I have had as an adult. It is not something that I cared about as a teenager. <laughs> but that is also, you know, something to keep in mind that that is a is a plot point only for adults enjoying teen media and is not as much of a concern for actual teenagers. <laughs> <laughs> so we clearly we enjoyed this movie, which is great. Um, we did have some we did kind of have some issues with it. Uh, one of the things, this was not a huge thing, but one of the things that I thought was very interesting was that you and I had very different reactions to the fact that Ellie is writing um, other people's papers for pay and her English teacher knows and basically doesn't care. Like her English teacher's reaction is basically, well, this saves me from having to read bad papers and frankly, you're my student with the most... I, I got the sense that it was, you're my student who is actually going to, like, make something of themselves. So it's not... It almost doesn't matter that you're doing their homework for them because it, like, they're... They're not going to, like, go off and do huge things because they got an A on a cheating... On a... um plagiarized English paper. This did not bother me. I got the sense that it bothered you a little bit. Yeah, that that one bothered me. If only, I mean, I think that someone writing someone else's papers for them is a, a staple trope in teen movies, but I just, I didn't, I, I just think that it, it did bother me that the teacher was willing to just let that slide. I think that it, it it speaks to having given up on a lot of those students. Well, and I, and that, I think that, that bothered me. I, I think that that's absolutely true. Um, I also think that it was a pretty good gag. Like, it, I, I chuckled at that. So for, for exaggerated comedic purposes, I wasn't mad about it. Fair. And, I, and to be fair, like, the teacher also does some nice things with I appreciated... As a graduate of a small liberal arts college, I, I appreciated the the Grinnell um, advertisement <laughs> stuck in this sure. movie. Um, because I, you know, any, any representation of small liberal arts colleges is great. I also think that it would be rough to be a, a, a senior, like a teacher of seniors, in a town because you you get the sense that this is a town where you either escape like quote-unquote escape or you're there forever yeah so i i kind of don't blame her if she's teaching seniors by that point they kind of know if they are staying or if they are gonna leave and go do something else so for the kids who want to stay or for the kids who are staying i can see how a teacher would be like well it doesn't matter because like i i have given up on the students who have no other aspirations except to stay in town and i'm trying to phrase this delicately because i don't think there's anything wrong with that as long as it's what you want to do but for ellie it clearly wasn't yeah and i so. 
I mean, I understand it's like a trope and it was played as a gag. It just, like, the ethical, I, yeah, I just was like, wait, hold on a second here. Like, there's some (laughs) ethical considerations. Like, this is not, and I mean, clearly we're meant to understand that this is something that teacher has thought deeply about. Like, she is not fully flippant about, oh, yeah, you know, she, she has done the calculus of this is probably for the greater good. Um. But I think just because, like, we didn't really fully get to see that calculus, and I don't know. I just, that, yeah, that just, like, bothered me a bit. Um, But, yeah, again, this, you know, this teacher clearly did some good for Ellie, pushing her into, you know, the college environment that she wants. And I, I appreciated that it wasn't, like go off to the Ivy League, it was, you know, here's a, here's a school that fits what you might want to do. Yeah, I really appreciated that it wasn't, like, Harvard or Yale, because it so often is, and it's like, guys, going to Harvard is not the be-all, end-all, cure-all that popular, that teen pop culture, like, makes it out to be. Um... I mean, Grinnell is also a crazy expensive, uh, exclusive, small liberal arts college. (laughs) Um, But it was nice to get a different name in the mix. Yeah. And again, I, you know, again, I'm a little biased because I also went to a small liberal arts college. And so I, I appreciate any time they get name dropped. Um, My sister went to Grinnell. Like, um, I'm for it. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um. Yeah, but yeah, and also, yeah, just on the level of it wasn't, wasn't Harvard or Yale. Um, I want to talk about Aster a little bit. Yeah. Because the overwhelming feeling that I had with Aster was of a missed opportunity. Um, she is beautiful and artistic and is with, like, the popular football player and, you know, the, her kind of whole deal is that she is more than the pretty and popular girl that everyone sees and thinks that she is. However, I don't know that she was fully served by the writing of the movie. Um, even when she is kind of showing herself to be more than these popular girl tropes, I still felt very strongly that she was fulfilling some pretty stereotypical um, like not like other girls tropes. Yeah, and there was some Mary Sueishness of. Um, she's popular. She's beautiful. She's artistic. She's everything. She, you know, um, that we didn't. Yeah, we didn't get to spend enough time with her to really move past that initial, like you said, like not like other girls set up. Um, and I think the movie was probably trying to strategically focus on Polly and Ellie's friendship. And, and so I think by virtue of the fact that they spent more time there, we just got less time with Aster. Um, it might also be a function of, I feel like that character in that Cyrano de Bergerac trope is often left undeveloped. Um... I think the original character's name is Roxana or Roxanne or something. Roxanne. Yeah. 
Roxanne. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I think that that you know that trope or like that storyline, I should say, of Sirenhood and Bergerac is is often more focused on the friendship between the two characters trying to woo the Roxanne. Um, but yeah, I think, like you said, I think this is a missed opportunity because I think they could have taken some time to give her more and to add some depth to her character. Well, and the place where it really fell apart for me, because I, I do think that they have, I do think that Astra has some interesting things going on. I was very interested by the fact that her dad is the pastor of this town. Like that in and of itself made for some interesting things to explore. Although I don't know that the conservatism of the town was fully kind of explored in a way that I found satisfactory just to make the kind of end explosion over Ellie's queerness make a lot of a lot as much sense as we wanted it to um but the the place where where Astor's characterization really fell apart for me is the the climactic scene in church when her terrible boyfriend proposes to her and she says yes and that moment I was like "Mm, hold on a minute I don't know that we have seen enough of how constricted she feels like she talks about feeling constricted by her dad but I don't know that we see enough of her acquiescing to that or why she would acquiesce to that for that moment to make sense to me yeah I think we needed some groundwork more of her you know having a tug of war between I love my parents and my family, but this is what I want for myself, and how do I balance that? I don't think we got to see her have that tug of war enough to that it would make sense that she would accept his proposal. Yeah, it her her storyline felt very much like we were being told a lot of things about her without getting the chance to see them in action. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. I think, yeah, she there just was not enough depth there um, that we really got to believe in her choices as a fully realized character versus this is what the plot needs us to do, so we're going to do this. I will say that she and Ellie had possibly my favorite scene in the movie when they are trading graffiti challenges that was fun yeah there there's a moment in the movie where um ellie it's like a little montage of the letters that ellie and aster are writing to each other when aster thinks that ellie is paul and ellie kind of challenges aster aster's an artist because of course she is um and ellie kind of challenges her to take some bold strokes on a blank cement wall and it turns into the two of them adding to each other's work and creating a really cool piece of of street art that eventually gets painted over by the um killjoy like i I don't know what he does but he probably he was like it seemed like he had an apron so i assumed he was like the 
I assume they were at that diner and he was the diner owner. But something like that. But I yeah, was he not fully clear. Away and he paints over the graffiti and I got really bummed about it. Right? Like, <laughs> I feel like if I were a business owner, I'd be like, oh, somebody made cool art on my building. All right. Um, so, yeah, I really enjoyed that scene. Uh, and the, the idea of the bold stroke in a painting does thematically kind of become a thing, um, particularly at the end when Ellie challenges Aster, like, is this the boldest stroke that you could make after she accepts Bad Boyfriend's proposal? So I thought that was a good callback. Yeah, that was set up nicely as a good through line, I think. Um, speaking of interesting moments in the movie. I think one one moment where, by contrast, you and I had a little more problem was the scene where Paul, Polly attempts to kiss Ellie and figures out for seemingly the second time that she is actually into Aster. There uh, is a moment that is deeply unclear that comes about halfway through the movie where I thought that the reveal was that Paul was figuring out that Ellie has a crush on Aster. And I think we both interpreted it that way. But then, yeah, later in the movie, he tries to kiss Ellie and she's like, whoa, dude. And then he, then that is apparently the reveal where she has a crush on Aster because it also comes, I think he says like, you're going to hell which was the point where I was like, oh, this town is much more conservative than I thought it was. And I, I don't know that the movie did a great job of setting up my expectations for that. Right. Um, yeah, yeah, that seemed to kind was, of just be thrown in there. Mostly I was just very confused because I thought we had already done that. And now I don't know what Paul was realizing because Ellie's listing all of these things that she likes about Aster, and he goes, oh my god, I'm so stupid. And I'm like, oh, now's the part where they're going to fight about that, and they get over it pretty quick, and I enjoyed that. But then, yeah, I, I still am not totally sure what happened. Yeah, and I, I really prefer the interpretation of that first scene is just meant to be him figuring out and... I think it fits so much better with the idea that people are more than their stereotypes because it's just such a lovely notion that he kind of takes in that information and says, oh, okay, um, versus the later you're going to hell, um, which I think is much more leading into the stereotype. Um, yeah, so that was that was kind of a disappointing moment. Yeah, because I also had a moment of like, oh... Ellie is gay and no one cares. Right. And, like, because cause she doesn't, quote unquote, come out during the course of the movie. So I was like, oh, okay, this can just be a thing. And then that was not a thing. And then I got kind of confused about what we were doing here. Um, I wasn't... I wasn't mad about the fact that he and Ellie... That he tries to kiss Ellie and she gets mad about it and has to tell him why it's a bad thing because we did have a scene earlier where he's like and I knew she wanted to kiss me and Ellie's like how and I said yes have this have this conversation about explicit consent versus implied consent which is nothing um so Paul was already kind of set up to be that kind of like Oh, and then you just know that it's the right time. So I didn't mind them having a scene where Ellie got to be like, no, really, you don't get to do this. Um, 
it was the it was specifically the homophobic angle of it. Right, right. Like I think the idea that he realizes he has a stronger connection with Ellie than Aster and and thinks for a, a little bit that that might be romantic and and all the things you're saying about you know him and consent yeah i i totally agree i think that yeah it just would have been i mean if we could have wrapped that scene into one it had that conflict but then him not say you're going to hell and instead doing the the reaction the other scene of oh i'm so stupid you know like i think that I think the humiliation of misreading Ellie's signals would have been enough. Right. But then also, if if the point is that this whole town is homophobic and conservative, which I, I think it is, I just don't know that we see enough of that. Yeah, it's not fully established. Because we also get a scene or a moment with Paul and his mom Paul is doing some Googling about how do you know if you're gay that his mom sees. So then she is like, oh, no, my son might be gay. And they have a moment in church where he's like, no, mom, I'm not gay. And she's like, I still would like I would still love you if you were. And then he says, but I am thinking about changing grandma's sausage recipe. And like, that's the thing that she has more of an issue with. Yeah, I, I really enjoyed that little moment. I enjoyed that a lot. Um. Yeah, not that I need more homophobic content in movies, just if that's going to be what your story is, I think we needed more to push back against. Right, right. Like, I think that needed to be set up more to have the payoff in the church scene. Mm-hmm. Agreed. Um, anything else we want to talk about? I think we've, we've covered all the... The main reactions to this movie we had, uh, other than, I mean, I think we could have spent a little more time talking about Ellie's father. Um, what would you like to? Luca. Although I think we, I think we talked about the main, just like, sweetness of the scenes with him and Paul. Um, but yeah, I, I thought that was just a really lovely, you know, giving him development as a character and... Well, and I, I, I enjoyed um, the parts of the story that were about, like, not only is Ellie potentially one of very few, not only, because you're never only, but very few queer people in this town, she and her father are the only Chinese people here, um, and kind of getting to see what his life is like, because he, you know, Ellie talks about how her dad was an engineer, um, before immigrating to the United States and had hopes of like starting as the kind of station manager, but working up to engineer and how that hasn't happened for him because not speaking great English is more of a barrier to um, progression than actually knowing what it what he's doing. Um, I I thought that the way that that whole story was handled was really deft. Same. Uh, because uh, Wu doesn't overwrite it, and you still know exactly what's going on. Yeah, and I and I think it really it makes 
It, it just makes for a nice kind of unfolding of both Ellie and her father's relationship and then also, you know, his developing friendship with Polly. I think it just, it, it fits really nicely um, into, you know, making us invested in those relationships. There's also a very lovely scene between um, Ellie's dad and Paul where Ellie's dad tells Paul about Ellie's mom. Yes. Oh, that was one of my favorite scenes. He does so in Chinese. So you are kind of left wondering, like, how much of this does Polly really understand? Um, Because I... Just a sec. I'm going to look up. Ellie's dad's name because I feel weird just calling him Ellie's dad. Uh, Edwin, Edwin Chu. Um, you you get the feeling that this is not a story that Edwin could have told satisfactorily in a in a language that is not his native language. So the fact that we get to hear him tell it in his own language, I thought was a really beautiful moment. And the emotion of the story is clearly coming across to Paul, even if um, he doesn't necessarily understand, like, the intricacies of the story. He understands that Edwin is telling him something very, very meaningful. Yeah, and it's just a lovely, like, their body language in that scene. Like, you can just see that, yeah, Polly is realizing, even if he can't understand the words, how much this story means to Edwin and yeah it's just a lovely bonding moment and then they make dumplings out of taco sausage and then they make dumplings out of taco sausage (laughs) which was just so great so cute Um, I also got the feeling that one of the reasons Ellie felt okay to go to to go away to school is that Polly and Edwin have this relationship now, so she is not the only one who's now invested in her dad's well-being. Right, and that presumably Polly will be checking up on him and kind of a good source of... Is the term I'm looking for a social life or social connection that will help? Yeah. Yeah. um, We also get to see how... Polly really likes that Ellie's the quiet and the solitude of Ellie's house is an escape for him because his house is total chaos. <laughs> so I like to think about him and Edwin watching classic uh, like golden age Hollywood movies together while just quietly eating taco sausage dumplings. Yeah. Oh, which speaking of, I really did enjoy the shout outs to the Philadelphia story and his girl Friday. Oh yeah, the the pop culture references in this movie were much better than in um, The Space Between Us. So much better. They (laughs) made so much more sense. Alright, well do we have... I was going to say, any final thoughts? Would we recommend this movie? Yeah, I I definitely would. Absolutely. I, yeah, I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. It's like a tight, um, I wanted to say 90 minutes. I don't know if that's quite true, but it's under two hours, which is great. Um, yeah, well-written, sweet characters. You could definitely do worse. 
Yeah. That's not fair. I really liked this movie. I think you should watch it. <laughs> what else would we recommend to our listeners? Um, so the book I'm going to recommend um, is an adult romance novel. Um, and it reminded me of this movie in the sense that it is about um, people of color in a small town. Um, the main character is... Um, bisexual and that's treated as just kind of a, a non-thing um which i think is great um and it's called wrong to need you by alicia rye um and it's about the main character is sadia um and she is a pakistani american um widow who is trying to keep her and her son's life together in this small town um and her um, former best friend, who is also her deceased husband's brother. Um, so I can't remember if that still technically makes her brother-in-law or what, what the term is. But um, comes back to town um, after having um, fled. Um, and so they reconnect. Um because before she was married to his brother, she they were best friends. Um, and yeah, it's, a, it's just a really lovely story. Um, two people kind of healing and connecting. Um, it's part of a series. Um, they're all great. Um, so yeah, Wrong to Need You by Alicia Rye. Uh, I have a YA book to recommend you. Uh, to recommend to you. Words are hard. Um, this is a brand new book that has come out just in the last month or so called Felix Ever After by Kaysen Callender. Uh, it is it is about Felix, who is a black trans queer teen growing up in a small town um, and ends up in a complicated love triangle um, after investigating uh, some correspondence that he gets which dead names him and threatens to uh, you know continue bullying him um, it is it, it deals a lot with queer and trans identity um, and has a thoroughly gorgeous cover um, of Felix wearing this phenomenal rose flower crown on the cover um, but yeah, I was just, I was looking into romantic books featuring uh, queer teens of color, and this one is brand new and extremely lovely, and I want more people to know about it. Great. Next episode, we are doing a throwback to 2003. We will be watching the Amanda Bynes masterpiece what a girl wants which you can watch right now on netflix um for a little piece of marin's and my own adolescence very so. <laughs> very fun piece i'm so excited uh but until then marin where can people find you um so folks can find me um at twitter uh under the handle a underscore star underscore danced um where I tweet a lot about romance novels um, and politics and maps and the state of Minnesota. 
So if you are interested in any of those topics, feel free to give me a follow. Uh, you can find me at all the places, although I'm mostly on Instagram right now because Twitter is a hell pit um, at Magical Martha. You can, excuse me, you can also listen to my other podcast, which I record with Marin's husband Pete, on this same feed on Alternating Wednesdays called Did You Do Your Homework? You can find the show at DYDYH podcast on social media at all the places, including Facebook. Um, if you have questions, comments, concerns, uh, suggestions for movies that we watch, uh, feel free to drop them in the Facebook group. Our only requirement is that they must be focused on teens and they must be available through some kind of streaming platform, uh, particularly now since none of us can go to the library. Um, we will be back in two weeks, uh, and until then, take care of yourselves, and just remember that we love ya. Um, if you have any, if this is a skill that you possess and you have any recommended YouTube video tutorials, please feel free to send them to me. Okay. I, uh, I will not sound arrogant, but I'm actually very good at French braiding. That is like... Nice. Any words of wisdom? Um, I can do a regular braid. Like, So my that's... main words of wisdom are use your pinkies. Um, okay. Yeah. Um, I think that... Um, if you use your pinkies to sweep the hair back into the braid, it makes, like, the chunks, it's going to give you a more manageable chunk, um, and it's going to, like, make the braid have more, like, pieces to it, if that makes sense, because you'll mm -hmm. have, like, smaller chunks, um, and, yeah, so it'll be easier, it feels kind of weird using your pinkies, but it'll be easier to do, and it will get you a nicer braid, all right. Um, I'm trying to think of what else. Um, let me see. So I actually, so my mother and I learned to braid together um, because I like needed to have my hair braided for like a braided for like a dance show or something. Mm -hmm. And so we learned from this little book on a. Um, on one of my dolls. Um, so yeah, I wish I, I will definitely take a look and see if there's any, like, YouTubing I can find, but, yeah. But yeah, the pinky would be my one, like, trick. Got it. That I have learned. Yeah, my, my nanny growing up was really good at it, because her daughters both had very long hair, and so whenever I had long hair, she could do it. Oh, cool. Um, but I, like, my hair was never consistent. I would go through phases where I just cut it all off. Yeah. Um, and yeah, it's just never been something that I have, never been a skill I picked up. And I think, too, like, I think the differences between, like, French braiding versus quote-unquote regular braiding like like in terms of the utility like there's not like 
a great need for the utility of a French braid versus a regular braid, unless you're like Sydney Bristow and need to hide your hair behind a wig. Yeah. Honestly, that was one of my main takeaways from Alias is, oh, I guess French braids are very useful for spies. (laughs) But yeah, well, that's exciting. Are you feeling like ready to grow your hair out a little more or are you? I haven't gotten a hair. So when quarantine started, I was already kind of in need of a haircut. Okay. So it is now currently longer than it has been in like a while. Uh Uh-huh. And I am getting a lot of breakage putting it up in ponytails. Okay. So I want something that I can do to get it out of my face, but that's not going to be as damaging as, like, a straight-up ponytail. I've been wearing a lot of low ponies. Yeah. um, And braiding it, like, at the nape of my neck. But it's not quite thick enough to do a good low braid. And I feel like low braids, so I do low braids all the time just in the interest of, like, getting out the door in the morning, and I find, like, an hour into my day, it will inevitably, like, the top of it will have just, like, hair will have started sneaking out, and then, like, at a certain point, it's just over. Yeah, I also, like, I'm growing out layers, so, like, the top of it's not quite long enough to stay in a braid for very long yeah um so i just thought this might be a nice alternative to keeping it out of my face um but also not being super damaging yeah i think i think that is definitely where the braid gets gets super useful and i find um yeah, I find that I, I don't often, like, fully French braid my hair, um, although now it is a little more true that I, I do, just with, you know, wearing the mask to work, because mm-hmm. um, it's nice to keep my, you know, hair out of my face, um, to have the mask over it, um, but, um, yeah, 